This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of All Things Considered CX. I'm your host, Bob Asman, the founder of Innovative CX Solutions, a past chairperson of the CXPA, and a practitioner with many years of transforming global operations and designing better customer experiences. Together with our guests and listeners, we seek to discuss, challenge, and create new understanding about how to inspire better experiences in response to ever-changing customer expectations. Hello and welcome to another episode of All Things Considered CX. This is Bob Asman, and I'm your host for another podcast episode. And today I'm pleased to be joined uh, to the podcast with Joel Bynes, who's the author of The Metail Economy, which we're going to get into uh, during our conversation on today's podcast. But Joel, welcome to the podcast. And please, if you would, introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. And hello, everyone. Uh, again, as Bob said, my name is Joel Bynes. I am the author of the new book, The Metail Economy. But when I'm not writing books, my day job is to run the global consumer and retail practice for the consulting firm, Alex Partners. Excellent, Joel. We're glad to have you. And as I was sharing with Joel before we began, I, I love having uh, authors join us on the podcast, especially on topics like Joel's book, because I think they're adjacent disciplines that as experienced professionals, we need to be aware of. But before we get into that, Joel, tell us a little bit about your career path. Our listeners love to learn about how did you get to where you are today? How did you decide to write this book? What's that career path look like for you um, on your journey? I love, I love that question. I, 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 I was, I was thinking a little bit about it. I, I thought to myself, it, it's fascinating sitting here 30 years into my professional career and looking back and connecting the dots from uh, really even before I started my professional career, high school jobs, and summer jobs and so forth to today. But if I said that any of them were part of some grander plan, uh, I would be lying. There was no moment in time a decade ago, two decades ago, three decades ago, where I sat there and I thought, okay, I'm going to be here and I'm going to write this book one day and so on and so forth. So it's just a fascinating topic to think about. And, and I guess I sometimes think of myself as a little bit of an atypical career path in the sense that I always like to say that my parents had no expectations for me. Um, and that is not the same thing as having low expectations, but I grew up in a family of four and, you know, we all were working when we were, I grew up in the seventies and eighties and, and we were all working, um, you know, if we wanted spending money and so forth. And I just, I just kept doing what was interesting to me. And I was very, very, I cast a very wide net. And then I started to cast a little bit of a narrower net and then, then, the thing that is the thread in my career is I just wound up connecting with senior executives who, for one reason or another, um, developed an affinity for me and would bring me along into situations. And again, because I, you know, I never expected to 
to go to an Ivy League school or I never expected to do a certain thing or get, you know, go work on Wall Street or whatever. I don't know, whatever people's expectations were. Uh, I was just always interested and I tried new things. So that led to a variety of really interesting roles in really interesting situations, all in the consumer economy. Very early in my career, I was also able to get a number of experiences that, um, you know, really were somewhat unusual for people at my stage in my career and my age, um, just by virtue of kind of being around and saying yes to stuff. And that resulted in ultimately a, a bankruptcy and turnaround of a bankrupt company and a merger that had us, my wife and me moving from New York to Fort Wayne, Indiana. And we took a little bit of stock and I decided I might want to try to go to business school. And so I, I did apply, I got my MBA coming out of MBA school in 1999, which was the height of the first internet boom. Of course, naturally, I thought, well, I'll give that a shot. And like 99% of the people in the 99 internet boom, it didn't go that well for me. <laughs> um, so I kind of came back to my roots in the consumer economy. And I had met a man named Jay Alex, who's an absolute legend in the turnaround space. He pretty much invented what we now call the turnaround consulting model. He had a very small firm at the time. It was called J. Alex and Associates. It is now called Alex Partners. I've been there almost 20 years um, and helped him build the practice along with a lot of other people. Uh, and that just allowed me to continue to have my conversations with consumers through executives, but also the consumers themselves. And as we grew, my platform grew. And as my platform grew, I got exposed to more and more stuff. Um, and now I run the global practice along with a, a partner of mine and you know, just have really deep gratitude for all the people that helped me get where I am today and huge job satisfaction, even after 20 years at the, at the same firm. So that's, that's how I got to today. That's a, that's a great summary, Joel. And the reason I asked that question of every one of my guests is because of course, nobody's journey is the same, but what I've also found is, and you characterize this is it's not like you woke up one day and said, I want to be in this business. I want to do these things in consumer retail. You kind of found your way to it and, and had an affinity for it, as you described. And we see that so often with many of our guests, and, and especially in the experience management world, very few of us woke up when we were you know, young and said, boy, I want to be an experienced professional. And it's always interesting to, to see that and hear that journey. And just to follow up on that, it sounds like your journey was peppered with some successes and failures that, that kind of guided your, your career development. Is that a fair way to, to uh, characterize it? Absolutely. I mean, I had personal successes and failures, but I also had early exposure to companies that were in varying degrees of success or failure in the case of the bankruptcy that I was associated with. And one of the things, and then of course, um, last almost 20 years at Alex Partners, hundreds of companies in all sorts of situations from the healthiest and high growth in the world to some of the more deeply distressed. What it, what it helps with to get that perspective is, um, you know, most people wind up having a career with a company. Um, one of the advantages of being a consultant is that you get exposed to a lot of different companies, but, but 
part of Alex Partners special sauce, unlike some of the strategy firms is, you know, we only hire experienced people. We don't hire out of college and we very rarely hire out of MBA school. So we, we recruit for experience because um, we want to work on really complicated problems. And if you're going to work on complicated problems, it really doesn't matter how smart you are. You actually have to have some experience. And, and so those experiences allow me to look at other experiences through the lens of understanding what happens to companies that fail to recognize, and now here you could fill in the blank, they fail to recognize a competitive shift, they fail to recognize a pricing shift, they fail to recognize a global shift, or in the case of the retail economy, they fail to recognize a consumer revolution um, that is going to impact virtually every company that ever hopes to do business with the consumer. And actually, I think it probably applies to businesses as well. But the focus of the book is really on the consumer economy. Mm -hmm. And so you touched on, on a question I was going to ask you. Um, what are the common elements you see with companies either that are failing or you know, are just not paying close enough attention to what's happening around them? What is there something common that comes out in your mind with all the work you've done with uh, hundreds of companies? Well, if we if we if we are just talk, let's just talk. Let's I'm going to answer that question in the context of the consumer companies as opposed to all companies. I don't yes. I don't mm -hmm. know that I would be a good person to ask answer, you know, what's happening at General Motors or General Electric. Um, although you could say General Motors is a consumer company at some level, but but um, within the world of consumer companies, you have successful companies and then you have everyone else. And what makes successful companies successful, in my view, is a fundamental understanding of who is in charge. And I don't mean the executive that is in charge. I mean, who it is that is calling the shots and how important it is to understand that for your business. It's not, there's not one answer to this question. And then to, to build your entire operating model, your compensation model, your rewards and measurements, your hiring model, your execution model around delivering what it is that your, in this case, your, your consumers want. And it's very easy to say, but it is extraordinarily hard to do, which is why if you took 100% of the consumer companies out there, you probably have about 10% of them that I would say are successful and succeeding. And the other 90% are in some degree struggling. You have companies that are doing just fine, but could be doing better. And then you have obviously on the other end of the spectrum, you know, certainly 2020 showed us this for retail um, with the masses of uh, retail bankruptcies. But, you know, then, of course, you have the companies that need to unfortunately go through some sort of a restructuring uh, um, or, you know, really, really deep cuts that uh, are just unfortunate and very, very painful. But but it's it's kind of the small percentage who are successful than everyone else. And they're all on some degree on an underperformance curve. You know, I, I really appreciate what you said about um, the consumer companies and, and so easy to say, build it around what consumers want. And what I find fascinating about your comment is that that's what our listeners spend a lot of time doing as, as customer experience professionals is trying to focus on the customer 
and yet face obstacle after obstacle in getting their leadership or their companies to move in that direction. Yeah. Why is that, Joel? I mean, it sounds, <laughs> why, why wouldn't you? I mean, right, it's mom, it's apple pie. It's, yeah. you know, why wouldn't you yeah. want to put the consumer at the center of everything you do? But yeah. yet you, it seems so difficult to do. Oh God, it's such a great question. And I, I, I wish I had an easy answer to it. I, I you know, I, I've had a lot of people that have read the book or, or say they have read the book say to me, you know, aren't you, aren't you just saying the customer is always right? And don't we already know that the customer is always right? And I said, no, I'm not saying the customer is always right. Cause a lot of times the customer isn't right. And no, Yes, it needs to be said anyway, because like, you know, we're all customers, everyone who's also an, a company executive. Um, how, what percentage of the time when you're interacting with a company, do you feel like you're, they're, they're basically treating you like you're always right? I mean, I, my percentage is quite low. So, so clearly, we've got we've to think about it. Your question about what stands in the way, man, God, I wish I knew. The, I mean, look, I will, I will venture to say that one of there are two two things that are both kind of two sides of the same coin. The first one is when I look at most senior executives in most companies, most of them grew up in the industry and they learned from their mentors and their predecessors. And because if we're just talking about retail for a minute retail models have changed, you know, you specialty stores and superstores and category killers and the internet, whatever. But generally speaking, the way you operated a retail business hasn't changed in millennia. Um, and I drag that point out a little bit in the book. Um, so you kind of are a, a victim of the past. And when you have a revolution like the retail economy, the consumer revolution that I write about, you're not prepared for it because you, you just don't have any of those experiences. I think that's probably the main point, but I do think in consumer businesses especially, there is this cult of the hero leader, the merchant prince or princess is a phrase that gets used a lot in retail. And there's this hubris that kind of comes along with being a leader of a consumer business that creates management teams that think that they are the smart ones and they have the answers and they will figure it out and then serve it to their customers. And that worked incredibly well, connecting it back to the first point, for centuries, millennia, really. I mean, it was always one-sided. The companies had all the power in the relationship. But today, the power dynamic is completely inverted. And the consumer has all of the power. They have access to all the information they need to make informed choices. There's far less friction today than there ever was. It's much easier, you know, switching costs are lower is the, the consulting way to say that. Um, and so it creates a dynamic that hubris is not designed for and experience is not designed for. And I think in a very long-winded roundabout answer to your question, that's probably 80% of the problem. Mm-hmm. I think that's an excellent point. And, and also your point about we're all consumers. I, I often say this is we are all consumers until we, in the good old days when we were in our offices, not on Zoom calls, but you know we walk into our office and suddenly we forget we're consumers and we design policies and practices and procedures that are not customer friendly. 
and yet we complain about it uh, in the evening when we've had a bad experience. It's that just- is precisely what I meant. That is a much yeah. more articulate way of saying what I just said. <laughs> well, I'm glad I could help you <laughs> out. I love it. Out. <laughs> so. I love it, actually. Oh, that's good. So, listeners, you're uh, tuned into the All Things Considered CX podcast with Joel Bynes, the author of The Metail Economy, and we're having a great discussion about being consumer centric. So Joel, let's get into the book itself and give us an overview of the book. And then of course, I'd love to get into the six strategies you outline in, in the book itself. You bet. Okay. So here, here's the book. It's, it's really three sections. The first section is a, a bit of a, a, a history uh, lesson about retail and then, and then making the case for what I call Mies, which is the new consumer. I refer to them as Mies. That's how you get to the Mietail economy. And then this notion of the quantum consumer. And, and uh, <laughs> my, my teachers will laugh. I, I was a philosophy major at a liberal arts college in Maine. I think the last science class I took was eighth grade biology. So me talking about physics is, is, is amusing. But um, you know, there's this concept in physics and quantum physics that a particle can exist in two places simultaneously. And because of technology, the internet really, um, consumers can now exist in two places simultaneously, meaning they can be two entirely different consumers in the exact same moment of time. So if you add this fragmentation down from demographics down to individuals, which is the me, you add it to this notion of a quantum consumer, you can see how it's exponentially more difficult for companies and marketers, CS, CX executives to tailor things to consumers the way that they used to. We're not reliable demographics kind of moving in the same direction the way that we were for you know, a long, long time. That's the first section of the book. I want to make the case. And if you don't buy it, then you don't have to read the rest of the book. The next section of the book is what I call the six strategies for transforming your business. I call them the six C's, kind of after the four C's of a diamond. Um, I'll come back to them in just a minute. But the point about the C's is they're not prescriptive. It's more like uh, they're ingredients. And what I, what I stress over and over again is this is imagine that you are on the great consumer baking show and you all have the same basket of six ingredients. And it's up to you to determine which you use and in what amount, a pinch of this or two cups of that. Um, And it's not meant to be prescriptive because I'm not really a big fan of business books in general. I make that case early in my book. I don't don't think that I have the right to tell anyone how their company should run if I don't know enough about their company. But I do think I have sort of laid out six ingredients that will allow you to cook a pretty tasty recipe. That's the middle of the book. We'll come back in a second. The end of the book is... um, just a little bit of a what do I do on Monday morning? I call it an executive action plan. It's very, very short. It's you know 25 or 30 pages and it's got some funny anecdotes in it, but it's designed to, for the question that you asked just a few minutes ago about we show up at work and even though we are consumers, we design consumer unfriendly practices or our company does and we kind of can't figure out why or what to do about it. This isn't a how-to manual, but it's a bit of a guidepost. And now this is after me, you know, 30 years of working with companies in all sizes of, and all performance characteristics and nearly 20 um, with, a, you know, with Alex partners. So th- this is pretty distilled wisdom about how I think 
executives should take themselves and others through thinking about the change. So before I get into the six C's for a second, Bob, let me just pause for a minute and see if that elicited any questions for you. Um, I, I love the fact you talk about the business book view that you have and attitude, Joel, um, because I do think that a lot of business books take that on. And in, especially in customer experience circles, uh, the how-to books are quite popular. So I like the way you formatted this book. How did you, how did you kind of emerge from the classic and kind of break, you, you know, do your own disruption around how you would structure the book? Well, I, look, I mean, I, 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 I always have said, um, I don't really like self-help books or business books unless they reinforce a preconceived notion that I already have. So, you know, that's, <laughs> yes. that, 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 that's kind of how, that's kind of my approach. I just look, I, I, I came to this, uh, this world of, it seems like consultants are the ones that write the business books, which is very, very odd to me because most people that are consultants, they went to college, they joined a consulting firm, they worked at the consulting firm for their whole career, and then they write a book. And I'm just like, well, when you work for a consulting firm, all you do is give people advice. Like you never actually do anything. And the beauty of Alex Partners and what's kept me there for as long as it has is we actually do stuff because we hire experienced people who know what they're doing. And so we're consultants in the sense that we don't work for the companies, but we're more like operators. And because of that orientation, I just see over and over and over again these kind of prescriptive methodologies that businesses glom onto. It's whatever the next latest strategy is. And you know, these authors create these neat little frameworks and they put you in a matrix and whatever it is. But the reality is your business is as individual as you are. And so there is no one size fits all answer for how to deliver a good customer experience or how to turn around a business or how to create a growth strategy or whatever. So I, I just I've just sort of had a general objection to the to the class of business book that does that. And, and frankly, that's part of the reason why it took me so long to write this book, because I just didn't want to write another business book that sounded like somehow I have the answers. Because actually, that is the exact opposite of the premise of the book, which is that we executives don't have the answers anymore. It's our customers that have the answers. It's up to us to deliver the experience to them in a way that they're going to you know, want to interact with us and hopefully spend their hard-earned money with us. I mean, we are obviously in the business of doing business. Exactly. I think if you could hear them, you'd hear our listeners cheering right now uh, <laughs> for how you just... Describe well, I welcome I welcome all cheers on uh, all platforms that have review sites for, there you for go. the retail economy. <laughs> Pick your favorite online site, and if you want to cheer the book, please do cheer. it publicly and loudly. <laughs> uh, I think that's that's very fair to ask our listeners to do that. Thank you. So let's get into the to the middle section of the book yeah. as you described. So so here are the six C's. And I, I, I can imagine the eye rolls uh, when I say these sometimes, but there's, the six C's are cost, convenience, category expertise, customization, curation, and community. And when I, re I really spent a lot of time thinking about it, I had a lot of people suggest other things. What about customer service and so forth? And I talk about many other things in the book, but to me, they're all derivatives of these core six C's. You can compete and build a recipe for your consumers using these six C's, either liberally or a pinch or not at all. 
um, we don't have, you know, we don't have time to go through all six of them. But but when I think about customer experience for just a minute, one of the ones that is my favorite C, although I guess it's a little bit like my children, I'm not supposed to have a favorite, um, is the is the convenience C, and the convenience C basically boils down to the mistake that most companies make, thinking that they're delivering the convenience C's, is if you ask the question convenient for whom the answer is almost always convenient for the company not convenient for the customer and what i challenge companies to do is first and foremost make sure that the answer is it's convenient for the customer and then you figure everything else out from there and if you have the possibility to make it convenient for the customer but also beneficial for you as a business then you've hit a home run and the example i use of that is costco and their gas hoses and i don't know how many of your listeners have gotten gas at costco if you haven't i highly recommend it lots of people do but not just because it's the least expensive gas in town i'm sure i mean i actually did this just the other day for a car with a car i've had for five years you pull up to a gas station and you're for, you forgot or whatever and you're on the wrong side your gas tank is on the other side you have you you know the hose isn't going to reach so now you have to back up and people are mad at you and you're embarrassed if you're me i just drive away and go get gas somewhere else but <laughs> let, let's just let's just you know like i don't want to get out of my car after that right, right, but, right. but but let's just assume you stay anyway it's a huge problem it's a big pain in the butt well costco basically said why do gas hoses all have to be the same length and super short and i guess they asked around and the answer is there is no reason so the costco gas hose is up to three times as long as a standard gas hose and it's far long enough to reach over to the other side of the car so no matter what side of the car your gas tank is on you're always going to pull up to the tank and fill your car and drive away that's a huge customer convenience that takes uh, some anxiety out of the experience for a customer but at the same time if you think about it from a business perspective if you don't have cars backing up and trying to get on the right side and all that sort of stuff you can get far more cars through your gas lanes than you would otherwise be able to get so you sell more gas so that's a customer convenience that is also a company convenience but if if we think about this again as consumers i'm sure we can think of lots of places where let's say a retailer puts their customer service desk at the back of the store well we're not dumb they put it back there because they're hoping to sell us stuff on the walk through the, to the back and the walk back but that's not convenient for me that's a convenience that is actually an inconvenience. And so that's what that's what that chapter is about. Um, those are great, those are great examples. And um, I, I'm just intrigued by the Costco example. I didn't realize that about Costco and I go there all the time for gas. So I guarantee you the next time I fill up, I'm gonna watch, I'm gonna look for those hoses. Yeah. Um, but when you when you talk about this convenience factor, I think it's a great example that you're using. The one thing that that annoys me as a consumer is when um, uh, companies characterize everything as they. So you're interacting with employees and they always say, well, they made us do it or they did this. And I always ask them, who's the they? Isn't the they you, right? Aren't yeah. you? And, and that can be very frustrating. And I think what you're identifying there is, kind of a marriage made in heaven if they if a company can do both convenient for themselves and for the consumer. Yeah. 
Very much so. And, you know, the, the they question really comes down to a leadership question because you hear leaders talk about empowering frontline workers in the context of a, you know, a consumer business. Um, but again, it's like the convenience chapter. Have you really empowered them or is there a 14 inch thick policy manual and you get written up if you do something, you know, off spec? So it's, it's kind of, are you delivering on what it is that you're saying? You know, this is if you think about just employees, they, they are consumers of their company as well. And we all know what's happening right now with the great resignation. Um, you know, if I could contrast the convenience C with another C for, for a minute, and, and uh, you know, I suppose we'd go on after that or we could leave it there. But uh, part of one of the things that I talk about in the book is choosing the right C's for your business at your particular period of time, but also for your ambitions. And the reason that I mention that is convenience is something that scales extraordinarily well. You can make a convenience move if you are a single shingle owner of a one location store. You can make something more convenient for all your customers if you're a national or international company. Convenience scales. So to contrast that, one of the other C's that I talk about is curation. And I and I oh, really good. I was gonna ask you about that. Oh one good. I'm also, glad. Okay. I love it. And this was not pre-set up. Oh, this wasn't planned. This is <laughs> this great. Wasn't I love planned. This. Yeah, no, not not at all. Um, so great. That's perfect then, because curation is uh, something that is extremely difficult to deliver. Real curation. And I really go into great detail about what real curation is and what real curation isn't in the book. And I talk about Basically, if you boil it down, every single thing that you do has to be curated so that the customer believes that this particular place, time, moment, scent, audio, uh, whatever, it's designed specifically for that person. And so, first of all, when you're becoming a curator, you are naturally saying, I am going to go and try to attract this set of consumers that believe in this type of curation. But the, and so by that, by definition, that means that you're okay not having everyone coming to your store. That doesn't mean you wouldn't sell to them. It just means that you're, you're curating a particular, let's call it a lifestyle in this particular case. Um, the second thing though, that's really essential is the fact that if you have ambitions to scale your business, going from one location to two locations and two locations to 20 and 20 to 100 is extraordinarily difficult because curation is hard to maintain as you scale. Generally, curation is done best by the curator herself or himself. Some curators are able to create a second location or a third location. Inevitably, if you have a favorite restaurant that opens a second location, you find yourself comparing the two back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And now imagine that at scale. Um, and then, you know, just, just kind of to bring it to a close here, th there are a handful of examples of businesses that have had a healthy dose of curation and have been able to scale. But what happens too often is at scale, there's a disruption or there's a recession or something and you begin to make choices that are anti-curation and then the curation element begins to evaporate and 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 that's we've seen that happen with a number of companies as well so um 
you know, so curation is, I would say it's not for the faint of heart and it's not for people with global ambitions. It's extremely difficult to be a at scale curator. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, I'm really glad you, you mentioned that particular component and uh, listeners, I'm sure this has uh, helped whet your appetite to learn about the other six as outlined in Joel's book. Joel, before I let you go, I've got just a couple of final questions. One is, okay, where is all this headed? I mean, the pandemic, the supply chains, the, you mentioned the great resignation. From your perspective in writing this book about the retail economy, where do you think we're headed um, as we emerge from pandemics and resignations and supply chain issues? Yeah, uh, wow. Look, stepping back from kind of geopolitics and, and, and supply chain snafus and stuff, one of the things that got us to the retail economy is the fragmentation of, of heretofore unfragmentable groups, larger demographics. And they've fractured into smaller and smaller groups. And my observation is we are living in a world where by and large, people are choosing echo chambers rather than the general population. And the more we fragment and the more we start to only associate with people who believe the same things we believe, the more fragmented we become, if that makes sense. And so I don't personally see an end to that because it's just so much easier now to, um, to find and connect with people who are like-minded and and then you know you get a pool of people who are like-minded and then somebody in that pool decides that they want to be like-minded plus 10 degrees and then a bunch of them fragment until we're well, like-minded plus 10 degrees and that just happens over and over again i i don't know where that gets us i don't know where we're headed but i do know that that as i think about you know if you if you kind of said what is going to be an organizing theme of the future an organizing theme of the future is going to be that that this 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 fragmentation and fragmentation again and fragmentation again and you know if we bring it back to the context of, of this discussion that just that just creates a, an order of magnitude more complexity for figuring out how to attract and retain consumers that are fragmenting and are going to continue to fragment so maybe i don't know maybe i leave it at that at that mm -hmm. but that's it that that's that's a big big theme that i think the historians will look back at this generation and and, and define it through its fragmentation a fascinating view and perspective joel uh, listeners uh, besides going out and and getting joel's book the retail economy uh joel Final words of wisdom for our listeners. <laughs> well, I, listen, I mean, in the context of this discussion, my words of wisdom are, are printed in big, bold type on in the inside front cover jacket of the book. And it is, you are not smarter than your customer. <laughs> I love it. So that's, that, that's my words of wisdom. How about that? So stop trying so hard to be smarter than your customer. I love this. I love that. Those are great words of wisdom. Uh, that's you. why it, it ends all of my podcasts. Joel Bynes, 
author of The Retail Economy. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. It's My pleasure. Thanks for having conversation. me. And this has been another episode of the All Things Considered CX podcast. I'm your host, Bob Asman. Please stay tuned for more fascinating guests on my podcast. And if you've enjoyed this, please share it with your network as part of the CXFM podcast radio network. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of All Things Considered CX. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Subscribe to our show, follow me on LinkedIn, and visit my website at InnovativeCX.com for more insights on creating better experiences. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit CXofM.org for more resources.